Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In the pantheon of famous physicists, the late Freeman Dyson holds a special place. Not only did he make contributions to the foundations of modern physics, he also spent much of his career on highly speculative projects across a wide range of fields, from space exploration to the origins of life. He wrote popular books on science, and to top it all off, he found a place in the U.S. military-industrial complex, despite having a lifelong suspicion of authority. To talk about Dyson's extraordinary career, I'm joined down the line from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology by the historian and physicist David Kaiser, who has edited the book, Well, Doc, You're In, Freeman Dyson's Journey Through the Universe. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Uh, It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. So I'll, I'll get things started, David. Um, I'll give a potted history of Dyson or a, a potted biography. He was born a uh, hundred years ago in the village of Crowthorne in Berkshire, and that's about 40 miles west of central London. He, his was an upper middle class childhood, but unusually his mother had a law degree and then worked as a social worker after Dyson was born. His father was a composer of some note, and his father would actually be later knighted. Um, he was a knight bachelor. So, you know, this was a family, I suppose, that, that, har- that had arrived in uh, British society. And as was typical at the time for uh, uh, the child of such a family, Dyson was bundled off to boarding school at a very young age. And later he attended the prestigious Winchester College, He excelled at school, but he deeply resented the cruelty he and others suffered there. Dyson arrived at Cambridge in 1941 and gained a degree in mathematics before doing research for the British war effort. After the war, he switched to physics and he moved to the U.S. to study for a Ph.D. at Cornell University. Now, this degree famously was never awarded And a few years later, Mr. Dyson took up a professorship at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and he remained there until his death in 2020. So, David, Dyson is probably most famous for his big ideas, concepts uh, uh, about extraterrestrial civilizations, space exploration, and the origins of life. And, And we'll talk about some of those later. But he also made important contributions to theoretical physics, and he worked alongside some of the greats in the field, including his supervisor at Cornell, Hans Bethe, Robert Oppenheimer, and Richard Feynman. Can you, can you describe his, his work in physics? What, what did he do? Because he did make some major breakthroughs. He, he certainly did, and that was, in a sense, where, where his first real academic uh, achievements began to, to get uh, wider spread attention. So as you mentioned, uh, Freeman Dyson had begun by studying pure mathematics as a, as a uh, university student and undergraduate. Uh, and then uh, when he came back to school uh, following the conclusion of the Second World War, he still had a sense that mathematics might be the way to go. And he, he, he set himself a challenge. If he could prove a certain very abstract theorem in number theory, he'd make a go at it in pure mathematics. But if he failed that, 
he told himself his consolation prize would merely become a theoretical physicist. This was a pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, uh, ambitious young person from the start. So indeed, he did not prove the mathematical proof he hoped. He decided, in fact, he should try to tr work in this neighboring field of theoretical physics. And so with the aid of a Commonwealth fellowship from the British government, he actually was able to travel uh, for two years of study, graduate study here in the United States. And he arrived and, and his, his main goal was to study with the great Hans Bethe, uh, whose reputation was 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 renowned already. He would, Beta would go on to, to win the Nobel Prize in physics. Dyson uh, came to Cornell University in upstate New York to work with Beta uh, on what was then one of the major challenges in theoretical physics, which was how to really combine uh, special relativity with quantum theory uh, and, to, and to develop what, what came to be called quantum field theory, and in particular, a quantum theory of electrodynamics or simply QED, quantum electrodynamics. This is something that the greats uh, of the pre-war generation had worked on, people like Paul Dirac, uh, Werner Heisenberg, Wolfgang Pauli, you name it. And they kept getting, getting stymied. In fact, the field had kind of ground to a halt by, by the time Dyson came for nearly 20 years that the field seemed to have very clear uh, founding principles. One could agree on the equations to begin writing down. And then as soon as people tried to make practical calculations, what the likelihood, say, for two electrons to scatter, very straightforward sounding questions, the equations blew up. They seemed to give infinities instead of physical finite answers. And this had been well known since the 1930s, and progress had really ground to a halt. Well, this is the problem to which Hans Bethe suggested a very young Freeman Dyson give some attention as, as a young PhD student. And so uh, Dyson set to work trying to expand upon at first one of Bethe's own approaches, making some helpful approximations. This wasn't kind of a, a mathematician's proof, but maybe a physicist's good enough attempt. And that really got Dyson hooked. Bethe could quickly see that this young person could really calculate. He was extremely mathematically gifted. And this then set Dyson onto a journey the other main influence uh, from his early days at Cornell was not just Beta, but also the much younger uh, professor there, Richard Feynman. Uh, Beta and Feynman had worked closely together at wartime Los Alamos. Feynman was just beginning to work out what would soon very famously become uh, Feynman's own approach to QED centered around these Feynman diagrams and ways to, to sum up many, many uh, independent looking contributions. Well, Dyson really, really absorbed this, these lessons from Feynman directly long before Feynman wrote any of them down. Uh, and so he, from the beginning, he had a kind of private tutor uh, in Richard Feynman. There was really a, a two-way street. They would discuss things uh, informally. That summer after his first year of graduate school, uh, Dyson actually had a, a cross-country drive with Richard Feynman. Feynman was going back to Los Alamos to do more consulting. And Dyson kind of hitched a ride and they drove and had this sort of epic adventure. Uh, each of them told very different kinds of stories about it. But nonetheless, they spent several intense weeks together uh, discussing, among other things, quantum electrodynamics. Uh, and then Dyson made his way to Ann Arbor, Michigan, to study at the famous summer school in theoretical physics that summer, where the featured lecturer was Julian Schwinger, uh, the sort of wunderkind of Harvard who was working independently of Richard Feynman on what turned out to be a, a separate approach to cure these ills of quantum electrodynamics, to tame these infinities. So now Dyson had a five or six weeks of intensive kind of face-to-face -face time with Julian Schwinger, learning about a really different looking approach. Uh, and then that, at the end of that summer on what is now a very famous bus ride back towards the East Coast, uh, Dyson had this kind of epiphany. Uh, and he recorded these almost day by day or certainly week by week, 
in a series of letters, very charming, uh, breathless letters to his parents back in England. So we can chart Dyson's own thinking with with really a, a great granularity and texture during this moment of, of discovery. And so to bring the story to a close, what Dyson wound up doing was actually seeing connections between Feynman's and Schwinger's work, which neither Feynman nor Schwinger themselves had yet seen. And indeed, uh, building in as soon as he learned of it, uh, complementary work by the Japanese theorists in Ichiro uh, Tomonaga, which was only then beginning to be a little bit known uh, in places like the United States. It was Dyson who saw that these three attempts were actually uh, versions of the same thing. They were indeed mathematically interchangeable. That was already pretty astounding. And then he went on to do something that frankly was even more important. It was Dyson, not Feynman, not Schwinger, not Tomonaga, but rather Dyson who proved how to generalize these efforts to what we would now say to any order. So each of them was working in a perturbative series. You have a small little constant. So the corrections are at kind of at the percent level and corrections to that would be another factor of say a hundred smaller roughly. But no one had known how to tame even the first round of corrections. Dyson showed you could do, go, do this to arbitrary order. So that in principle, guided by one's patience rather than a kind of conceptual limit, one could in principle calculate quantities in quantum electrodynamics to arbitrary accuracy. This was Dyson's really kind of um, probably most significant achievement as a physicist, among many others. But he did this as a sort of first and second year graduate student. Um, and, and indeed, after that, left graduate school and, and went on to a rather remarkable career, remaining forever Mr. Dyson. And David, you mentioned the, the letters home, which I'm guessing were a sort of a goldmine for you and your and your co-authors um, when you were writing the book. I, I got a real sense of um, Dyson having some sort of personal awakening when he when he arrived in the U.S. I mean, I suppose you could imagine him being, uh, you know, constricted in those, you know, sort of awful schools that he went to in England. And then the war came along with rationing and the bombing and everything was was miserable, I'm sure. And then he, he arrives, um, you know, at Cornell in upstate New York and everything seemed, I suppose, new and exciting to him it is that uh, I got that feeling. Is that, I mean, is that, was that a major event in Dyson's life, that his arrival in the U.S.? I think you're exactly right. And, and the letters, again, really capture this is not only that we have to depend on Dyson's own recollections from many decades later, although those are wonderful and charming to read as well, but really do have this sort of week by week um, updating to his parents who uh, had never visited the United States and he had his older sister, Alice, as well. So he'd write these letters, these just kind of spur of the moment, kind of free association letters, typically one a week, sometimes more than one a week. He only learned many decades later that his mother had saved them all. He, these were kind of the way you might send emails or tweets today. These were not in, in Dyson's own mind, you know, kind of uh, meant to be lasting historical documents. They were occasional notes to his family that happens to have been saved. And he, he uh, they were returned to him, I think, uh, after his mother had passed away many years later. So they're not kind of polished, you know, kind of storytelling for the ages. They're really of the moment. And they and they you can have that they, they, they have that feel. So indeed, as you say, he, he comes not just to the United States, but to really, frankly, beautiful bucolic Ithaca, rolling hills, greenery, a, a major research university amidst a kind of uh, charming uh, landscape. It's it's alive with ideas. I mean, he, he's he's studying at the feet uh, of people like Hans Bethe and Richard Feynman and, and indeed many others. 
Uh, and he, you know, Dyson, he writes to his parents, I think especially to his mother, saying that everything is exciting. He's going to grow fat on the wonderful food in the cafeteria. <laughs> That's he, right. Yeah. You know, what, what college student, you know, loves the food in the cafeteria? He did. <laughs> I mean, the, the room, the seemingly bare dormitory, is, is treated as if it's a palace. I mean, everything, as you say, his horizons are expanding. He also, he, he made friends quickly and would both uh, enjoy, enjoy kind of car rides with some of his new American pals. They would drive to New York City or back for weekend trips. He also became really devoted to the buses. He would take long bus rides, not just the one I mentioned coming back from the summer school in Michigan, but he again, he would explore up and down the East Coast, make journeys into the Midwest. And we know that because he would write these, these detailed, again, kind of almost anthropological letters back to his, to his family describing what the kind of what we now call the rust belt was like kind of manufacturing towns in the midwest he would describe cultural shifts soon after the second world war political shifts in the united states uh left right tensions uh race relations and so on he really was attuned to this new land uh and and again since his family back in england had hadn't yet visited he he, he really wanted to be a kind of observer on the ground and he captures that day-to-day feel of it really in, in a kind of breathless charming way Mm, yeah, it, I, I found that really fascinating. I mean, it seemed to me that he, you know, he sort of hit the ground running as an American almost. He, you know, he was almost an American before he arrived. You know, <laughs> he might not have known it, but um, you know that. I, you know, I thought that was really interesting and 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 charming as well. You know, some of the descriptions um, yeah. of the country. But but David, let's let's go back a bit to um, to another formative. Uh, era in, in Dyson's life. And that's the work that he did during the Second World War. He was uh, doing operations operations research for a bomber command of the Royal Air Force. What what, what was Freeman Dyson doing there? And um, and what were some of the, 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 the challenges that he came up against, both scientific and personal? You're right. This was absolutely a formative set of experience. Not surprisingly, of course, the Second World War was so dramatic for so many people affected. Dyson was still a late teenager when, when he joined this effort. He was really quite young. He'd already been a university student at Cambridge, um, and the war, of course, interrupted so many things. Early on in the effort, uh, some kind of uh, um, analytically minded advisors to the British government had visited Cambridge, as I'm sure they were visiting many places throughout the country, to basically uh, do recruiting. And one of these was C.P. Snow, the, the famous physicist and, and novelist and during the war, it's, it's, others might not remember, Snow was actually deeply involved in basically kind of uh, military policy and advising uh, for, for the British government. So Snow, along with others, uh, visited Cambridge, <clears throat> spoke with young uh, students there, including Dyson. <clears throat> we know this because of Dyson's letters home, even, even uh, from, from this era of Dyson's life before it came, <clears throat> came to the United States. And Snow was trying to recruit young, kind of mathematically gifted uh, students to work for this new division. It was called Operational Research, or OR, which was being stood up uh, uh, throughout the, the, the defense ministry, in particular around um, the RAF and Bomber Command. And the idea was to basically do kind of refined statistical analyses. What types of, 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 of strategies uh, were effective and could kind of running the numbers, could a data-driven approach uh, find uh, places to Im- improve efficiencies and so on. It all it's, it might sound very self-evident today. This was really fairly novel uh, in the early 1940s. 
Uh, and so it basically Snow recruited uh, the young Freeman Dyson as a young mathematics student to come work on that. And, and that is indeed how Dyson spent most of the war um, at, at Bomber Command as a very young kind of junior analyst. And so the idea was to try to collect numbers on anything they could and see what were the room, what, what might be counterintuitive, uh, what might the, the operational uh, experienced officers be overlooking uh, if you take lots and lots of you know, data on many sorties, other patterns that might not be obvious from one or two kind of anecdotal reports from, say, pilots who come back. It was that kind of mindset, which, again, today sounds pretty straightforward. And that got Dyson started. Now, as you also rightly note, for Dyson, this became an, a, a second learning opportunity for him, which is he grew very quickly disillusioned with a kind of hierarchy, uh, which was not surprising in, in the military during wartime, but also what he, what he later would really castigate as a kind of, of, of lack of creativity, a kind of hidebound hierarchy uh, that we're going to do things because I said so kind of mindset, at least that what, what was the impression made in a very young uh, Freeman Dyson. You know, it's interesting, other historians have gone back uh, in the many years since then and, and maybe given a, a, a rounder picture of some of the very same people with whom Dyson was interacting at the time. And indeed, some things to which Dyson might not have been privy maybe showed a, a greater a, a creativity or originality for some of the folks who'd come in for Dyson's real uh, critique. But nonetheless, for, for Dyson's own point of view, this was an example of the people in power not really you know, listening to, to the creative young upstarts, a kind of uh, flow of information that wasn't really necessarily advancing the problem, but really an obeying kind of chain of command. And so this really stuck, uh, it reinforced for Dyson a kind of a loathing of hierarchy, which he already had, had, been, uh, had been garnering even from a young student at these boarding schools. And to him, I think it was all of a piece. The kind of word of authority for authority's sake was something that made him just absolutely, you know, um, a very, very, put his antenna up and made him very, very suspicious. And I think that, that he saw that in spades uh, during the wartime bomber command efforts. And... But that that brings us to, I suppose, a, a, a very powerful contradiction in in sort of his response to that. He instead of saying, oh, I, I'm never going to get involved in that sort of nonsense again. I'm never going to, you know, do lots of work to try save to save people's lives only to have that my recommendations ignored. He he persevered and um when he arrived in the U.S., it, it seems like he almost sought out a role in the military, in, in companies that, um, that developed technology for the military. I mean, it, is that because he, he, he thought that things could, could be done better in the U.S., that, that maybe the Americans um, would listen to the scientists and, and technologists? I'm not sure it was that um, intentional or that, that he thought about it in, in quite those terms. But you, and there was a bit of a delay, in fact. So, so Dyson dives into very, very heady, esoteric, you know, quantum theory and relativity and QED and so on, uh, excels brilliantly, very fresh out the gate, uh, and goes on to a, a remarkable career. He's hired uh, without a PhD. He's hired first as a full professor at Cornell in his 20s after Richard Feynman had left the university. Uh, and then, uh, as you mentioned, uh, soon after that, hired as a, as a full-time faculty member at the Institute for Advanced Study, uh, still with no PhD. So he could well have carried on sort of forever in that mode. Um, and I don't think he thought, uh, I'd better go uh, apply my skills to, to improve uh, uh, you know, 
national security for, for the United States. I think instead he was immersed in a, in a series of relationships with basically, uh, you know, veterans of the wartime projects, especially in the United States, people like Hans Bethe and Richard Feynman, who we've mentioned. Once he moved to the Institute, his boss was Robert Oppenheimer, famously director of wartime Los Alamos. Uh, it's often called the, the father of the atomic bomb. So his world was was suffused with, with the scholars, largely coming from physics and mathematics, who had a, a, a lot of very, very hands-on, sort of, let's say, worldly experience with, with military-related projects. So it wasn't that he was seeking it out, but that was the world uh, that he was becoming more deeply immersed in. He took a sabbatical in the mid-1950s, once he'd arrived at the Institute. He got time off, and he spent it uh, in Southern California uh, with, again, kind of friends of friends uh, from this uh, kind of Los Alamos network, um, including uh, a a physicist named uh, Frederick de Hoffman, who would work closely with Hans Bethe on, on abstract nuclear physics, but was also by this point working in a new division of a defense contracting company called General Atomics in Southern California. And then basically Hoffman said, you know, come here and spend some time with us, see what, what interests you. And so General Atomics then was working on uh, sort of civilian spinoff technologies from the new nuclear uh, nuclear age. And so they were a defense contractors as well. But what Dyson was working on with de Hoffman and others were things like civilian nuclear reactors, uranium reactors um, that could be used for training purposes, for creating isotopes, for, say, medical research, civilian purpose uranium reactors. And so Dyson sort of tried something new, to, uh, almost on a whim, went out there for a sabbatical and found he got really hooked by the idea. And again, his, his letters back to his parents make this very clear that there was a kind of thrill to applying his remarkable creativity and imagination to things that real live engineers could work on, you know, right next to him and, and see would this really work or not, to, to leave the realm of pencil and paper, requiring very hard pencil and paper calculation, but not limited to that world. And Dyson, again, writes these just breathless letters back to his parents that this is sort of real world exciting stuff, not because it was kind of military, but because it was, I think, practical. He could see the impact. He actually participated in a, in a patent for this new type of a reactor design that's still in use today, and a sort of inherently safe reactor uh, that would sort of automatically shut down before it could get, go into a kind of runaway meltdown. These very creative, clever ideas. And I think Dyson was was grabbed by the by this combination of very hard, careful, analytic thinking, and then the opportunity to see real world things come together as well. So, David, the reactor that you referred to is called Triga, and I think it it has it been was it installed in sixty six locations around the world, and and some of the the reactors are still operating today. I mean, it sounds like a like an amazing piece of technology that Dyson helped to uh, design. That's right. And so it was remarkably commercially successful. And my understanding, as you say, is that some of them are at least still active to this day, many decades later. Uh, of course, there have been you know, subsequent improvements and so on. But but the, the earliest ideas you know, really do share uh, uh, Dyson's name on the patent. And, and he was really um, you know, widely credited with having, having uh, gotten that in motion and helped to see the first generations through. But but I think the most extraordinary project that um, that Dyson worked on at at General Atomics was Project Orion, which 
I mean, something, you know, today it just sounds completely bonkers using uh, a huge number of, of nuclear bombs to, uh, to, send, uh, 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 to send a ship up into space and, and even across the solar system. So, so what was Project Orion and, and, and how is it supposed to work? Well, it, just as you say, it, it was an effort, maybe the ultimate effort to, to, um, to convert, you know, swords into plowshares, a kind of peaceful use of nuclear weapons uh, of, of a different sort than others that had been floated at the time. And again, this is something that absolutely grabbed uh, Freeman Dyson's attention. He worked on it uh, uh, really with, with significant effort during uh, additional trips back to Southern California and General Atomics. So the idea, as you say, was to basically use the impulse from a series of nuclear explosions carefully kind of, you know, uh, projected. They had to work on the shielding and the radiation uh, um, uh, shielding and so on. But you want to basically steer the, the, the output, let's call it, from exploding nuclear bombs uh, as a form of thrust, a uh, rather extraordinary form of thrust to lift really quite significant payloads uh, off the surface of the Earth, payloads that they hoped would one day include, you know, um, spacefaring astronauts and maybe entire large, large groups of people. And so uh, Dyson was, again, just intrigued by this. I mean, nuclear weapons were, uh, were a source of, of extraordinary um, power that was really without doubt. And here was an effort to try to use that new technology Back in a spirit of kind of exploration of 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 a, of a larger universe out there, or certainly a larger solar system at the very least, that kind of beckoned, and that was just a a a, a kind of from left field sort of uh, way of thinking about how do we try to 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 really explore uh, the unknown. And this just absolutely captured uh, Dyson's imagination. As a very young child, he'd written stories in a kind of Jules Verne uh, vein of, of you know, rocket trips to the moon. This was, this was really a kind of childhood uh, fantasy for Dyson, of course, for many, many other young people all around the world. And that was something that kind of stuck with him. Uh, and and now had a glimmer of maybe a, a new possibility. And he'd had this taste of this kind of melding of really out there creative analytical and theoretical thinking melded with, with cutting edge engineering and, and experimental physics. And this was another kind of opportunity, not just a daydream, but to think really hard about shockwaves, about impulse, about radiation shielding, about could this really work? What would the requirements be? What might be realistic? They got as far as doing some beta tests, not with the actual nukes, but with kind of conventional explosives to study the early thrust phase of, of kind of designs for, for kind of capsules. And there's some wonderful uh, films that were shot and some still images that remain to this day of Dyson kind of off to the side, staring at a bunch of engineers, literally hands on this, this test equipment. So again, I think it, it literally fired uh, the imagination of people like Freeman Dyson and, and indeed a whole team. And so I, I, I mean, I love that chapter. It was, yeah, I mean, it was just extraordinary. And, and I, I really, you know, I was sort of puzzling, thinking, how, how is this going to work? How, you know, what happens? And, and is this, I mean, this is what I've come up with. I've, you tell me if I'm right or wrong. I mean, I, I sort of, you, I picture you, you set off a nuclear explosion underneath the rocket. And so it goes up a bit. And then you toss another bomb for lack of a better word, out the bottom of the rocket, it explodes, it goes up a bit more, another bomb, it goes up a bit more, and 
And there was some something clever that Dyson did in terms of so so you not only have a bomb, the bomb also has a a material that doesn't explode that's called a a propellant. And Dyson worked out the best way to get that propellant propellant to go upwards to hit the bottom of the rocket, for lack of a better word, to send it up. I mean, is that is that how it would work? That, that that's what I got out of the book and you know, sort of looking on Wikipedia. Um, I, I think that's basically right. And so again, to go from, from that kind of sketch to the really detailed, there were dozens and dozens of technical memos. Some of them uh, actually, um, I think, classified and many others now uh, widely available. Uh, that, the, that this was to go from the kind of um, late night, you know, kind of uh, a day or night dream, a daydream or so for, for what a cool thing to think about at the level of cartoons to really work out, I say, sort of shock waves, the, the propagation of different kinds of disturbances through a whole range of materials. Uh, and some of which, you know, uh, turned out to then be of, of, of relevance for later studies in astrophysics and so on. It was it was real physics and real engineering uh, to go beyond the sketch to say this really could be feasible. Uh, now, I should say, uh, and again, the, the chapter in the book on that is written by uh, by uh, Freeman Dyson's son, George Dyson, a remarkably gifted historian of science and technology. George wrote a whole book on Project Orion some years ago, and he captured really, I think, the kind of uh, the thrill of that, the essence in a chapter for, for this edited volume. And so there really was a kind of enterprise uh, to try to, to see how far this could go. It was not surprisingly undone by both uh, mundane and, and rather significant political forces. At the mundane level, hearkening back to Dyson's kind of lifelong frustrations with bureaucracies, this was sort of a project that no main agency really wanted to own. It wasn't quite going to be done by the Air Force because it was for civilian space travel. It wasn't quite going to, going to be done by NASA because it involved nuclear weapons, which they had no you know, uh, part in. It kind of fell between the cracks of, of, of agencies within the U.S. federal government. And also, maybe even more significantly, really fell afoul of, of quite appropriate growing concerns, uh, which Dyson himself came to share, about you know, fallout in the atmosphere. This began in the mid-1950s. By the, the late 1950s, it became very clear to lots of people that uh, above-ground nuclear testing just for the weapons programs was really not doing good stuff, to put it mildly. That the, the, the dangers of radioactive fallout were becoming more, more and more clear and more serious. And that combined with the kind of um, you know, unavoidable federal uh, bureaucracy kind of um, uh, shenanigans, those two forces, the mundane and, and, and the really quite serious, ultimately doomed this project rather than kind of laws of physics. And so again, for, for, the, for the end of Dyson's days, he would still dream of other creative ways. Let's get there, right? He was an, he, a mental adventurer. He wanted to explore. He himself, it seems, likely would have volunteered for a trip had it been possible. He really thought that we got to find some clever ways to get beyond our parochial little uh, earth, earthly neighborhood. So although this particular project he developed conceptually far beyond what one might have expected, this one wouldn't go. He didn't give up hope. He thought there's got to be a way to explore at least our solar system neighborhood and maybe beyond. And, and David, you sort of hinted that um, that Dyson came round at some point to agreeing that maybe testing 
nuclear weapons in the atmosphere was not a good idea. Was he initially against it because he thought that it would it would sort of hinder projects like Project Orion, the sort of peaceful use of nuclear explosions? He did. And so again, I'd say to his credit, he 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 sat with a complicated problem, uh, didn't just think about it once and, and leave it. And he was capable of changing his mind, admitting that his former positions were mistaken, admitting it publicly, writing essays saying, I was wrong. And here's why I'm now convinced of, of, uh, of his current position. And the role of, of things like nuclear testing or more broadly on, on nuclear disarmament is, I think, a very good example of that. That, uh, again, in the book, we have his own hand-drawn uh, plots of the numbers of nuclear tests per year. And he saw this was, you know, rising literally as an unbroken exponential. So that cannot stand. Uh, and that it didn't have to be a kind of abstract language of strategy, of nuclear brinksmanship, of political science. He said, this can't go on. Look at this basic unsustainable trend and now all the things we've learned to worry that come along with that. So he himself convinced himself, changed his mind, worked indeed on topics like disarmament for a brief while within the United States Disarmament Agency, in fact. He took it seriously and wanted to contribute in, in the ways that he could. So indeed, it, it, was, it was not that he was hoping Project Orion would work and, no, and the bureaucrats would stay out of the way. He himself came around to say, this isn't the way to do it. What's next? Let's try some other way. And, you know, staying on the theme of, of Dyson's uh, connections with, with the U.S. military, he was a member of a group called the Jasons. And this was sort of a, 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 almost a secret society of, of scientists who advised the U.S. military. And I, I know that a lot of his work is, is still classified. But what, what do we know about the Jasons and Dyson's contributions? We know quite a bit. And here again, the chapter in the book was by a, a colleague, Anne Finkbeiner, who's really a, a world expert, maybe the world expert uh, on the Jasons. So she was the right person, I thought, to, to hear from about, about the group in general and, and Dyson's participation in it. So the group uh, it, the group itself is not exactly secret. In fact, there's a Wikipedia page. It's, so it's pretty easy to find out about the uh, past and even current membership. So the group is not exactly um, cloaked in secrecy. Many of their reports, as you say, are indeed uh, uh, classified as, as secret. And they were formed soon after the surprise launch of, of the Soviet satellite Sputnik in the late 1950s. It was finally pulled together roughly by around 1960 or so. But the idea was, again, a kind of high Cold War drama that many folks thought that there would be a need to advise the federal government, especially the military branches, a, a need to have a kind of fresh sets of fresh eyes of kind of uh, smart civilians who would have clearance to study uh, classified materials, but who weren't part of the military themselves. They could play the role of a kind of peer review for a system that otherwise was not subject to the kinds of peer review that the kind of open scientific literature uh, really really depends upon. So it was a group uh, that came together to advise the U.S. military in a, in a sense to try to head off what they feared might be kind of enthusiasms uh, from this or that general or this or that branch that weren't going to be subjected to the kind of really close skeptical scrutiny that we all do for each other, you know, as, as scientists and scholars all the time. So this is what Dyson referred to as, as lemon detection, I think. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. So basically, is, is this idea, you know, just 
so ridiculous it couldn't possibly work before some agency spends a lot of money or heaven forbid you know runs away with something that's that's going to be either more dangerous than they expect because of unintended consequences or just could never work because of some basic physical principles either way let's get ahead of that and so it was a group that was dominated in the early years by theoretical physicists which is again a little surprising. Uh, Many of them, like Freeman Dyson, had by this point worked closely with experimentalists and even engineers, but it was really kind of mathematically inclined theoretical physicists, uh, among others, who would do this kind of summer study every summer, uh, what are topics that either the, the, the Air Force or some other branch wanted some outside scrutiny on for to, to, to give a, a kind of a check on, or that the Jasons themselves said, you don't even know this is a problem. We're going to look into this, you know, on your behalf. So they would typically meet uh, over the summers uh, and and choose a, a, a small set of topics, prepare reports. Again, based on often based on classified materials, the reports were often classified. Though several have since been declassified, and they could range on a, on a, a wide range of topics. In more recent years, uh, other kinds of topics have come into the Jason's purview, uh, bioweapons and biosecurity and so on, not only kind of classic problems uh, in physics or, or nuclear weapons. But the idea would be what science and technology-based you know, topics should the federal government have kind of skeptical outside experts on hand to try to, to, to catch? Uh, is this really going in, in, a, in a terrifically wrong direction or not? So the group became actually fairly controversial uh, in the late stages of the Vietnam War, uh, where, again, some titles of reports were made public. The reports themselves were not. From the titles, it looked like the Jasons might be advocating for some really quite despicable uh, moves. I will use the word despicable. I think many of the Jasons themselves would have even at the time. And it, it seems that, in fact, the Jasons were saying, this is not the way to go. Don't use these anti-personnel weapons and so on. There's both better efficiencies and a kind of human or moral element. But that wasn't wasn't at all clear because the reports themselves were, were still highly protected. And so membership on these groups uh, was seen as really uh, in many circles as a taint. Uh, and Dyson kind of lived with that and lived through it. And he, he didn't resign from the group. He stayed active really until the very, very end. But it was it was something which me, many members of the group had to deal with, where they sort of couldn't defend in detail what they were doing, and indeed many reasonable people could nonetheless disagree. So they were the the, the work they did was classified, even though they thought they many of them thought they were doing uh, maybe uh, good work to stave off even even worse you know, possible outcomes. So a, a controversial group certainly uh, in the late sixties and early seventies, and it's uh, had its ups and downs ever since. But Dyson never wavered, and he participated nearly every summer, uh, really, for decades and decades. So, David, moving away from, uh, I suppose, theoretical physics and uh, and defense work, um, I think Dyson is probably most known for um, the concept of the Dyson sphere, which is uh, so, sort of a really big idea. It's highly speculative, but, uh, you know, it's also taken seriously by by astronomers. What is a, a Dyson sphere? That's right. This is what one of his forays uh, in the early 1960s to again think in a careful, grounded, quantitative way about questions that many, many colleagues hadn't even recognized as a question. And Dyson had a special knack for that really throughout his very long and, and, and remarkable career. So here he was getting very concerned about things like energy usage to sustain an advanced civilization. You know, all of our, our of our, our 
our gadgets require some kind of energy use. Uh, and so Dyson figured that one pretty ready source of energy would be the output from a star, like our own sun. Of course, we rely on that all the time uh, here on Earth. So Dyson began speculating any sufficiently advanced civilization would realize to keep, you know, in a sense, their iPhones going long before the day of iPhones, uh, the civilization might simply geoengineer, kind of take apart a, a, a planet in their neighborhood. That already is rather remarkable. Let's just take apart a planet to repurpose the raw materials into a whole coordinated array of basically solar panels surrounding the star to get an even more efficient way to grab the, the energy and put it into useful, usable form, basically surround the star with solar panels. And that might then power a civilization for you know, eons, not just a, a kind of centuries scale, but really um, uh, even beyond millennia. And then Dyson characteristically says, well, if that were the case, how would we ever know here on Earth? He says, of course, the aliens would want to do that. That seemed like the most rational thing. He convinced himself that was uh, straightforward. He ran the numbers. One could take apart a Jupiter-sized planet uh, and, and, and repurpose the raw materials. He ran those numbers first. That, was, that wasn't the flaw. And he said, well, how would we know? And so he began wondering about what this, would, what this assembly would look like far away. If we astronomers here on Earth could ever detect such a series of, of assemblages out uh, around faraway stars. And he realized that this would kind of block the light mostly in the visible bands, but would still emit in the infrared. And so he was basically advising astronomers, and this is in the earliest days of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, Here's another kind of distinctive signal to go looking for. Would there be infrared emissions without the corresponding visible that really could be a sign of the heat radiation seeping out from what has otherwise been a kind of largely contained star uh, that's being uh, kind of milked for its solar energy uh, by, by a nearby civilization? And this was, uh, as Dyson himself uh, really uh, credited throughout his life, this was an idea that some science fiction authors had dreamed up without having run the numbers even before in books, uh, some of which the Dyson really had read. So it wasn't that Dyson uh, came up with this entirely out of the blue. What he did was, was again, characteristic. He sat with it. He, he ran the numbers. He wondered about this versus that semi-realistic path forward. Instead of just saying, here's a cartoon, I think it's cool. He wanted to really delve in and then go further and say, how would we know? And that's where things like the astronomical signatures really rose to prominence as well. So that's an example where, where Dyson was inspired by science fiction. And then, of course, science fiction authors ever since have delighted in this idea. There's an image in the book uh, of, of, of the Starship Enterprise uh, from, from Star Trek cruising past a, a, an artist's uh, uh, conception of a Dyson sphere would have looked like. So really, this, this became a staple back into the realms of science fiction ever since uh, Dyson's work on it. And, you know, for, from our perspective here on Physics World, you know, we're, we're always looking for exciting new astronomy news. And every once in a while, there will be a story, a paper, where some, you know, astronomers have spotted something that may look like a Dyson sphere. Um, you know, sometimes it's not. And, but who knows? I mean, it, it, so it is a serious, it is a serious thing, isn't it? It's, it's uh, something that astronomers are looking for. And, it uh, is. And, and I think it's another sign of a thing Dyson learned. He credited with his move to the United States going all the way back to his early years, 
that there's a way in which, again, this kind of post-Second World War generation of US-based physicists and physical scientists had become accustomed to working with data and working closely with engineers and experimental physicists in a way that Dyson said, maybe unfairly, but Dyson's, Dyson's view was that the kind of Cambridge mathematical physics approach really treated, let's say, data or empirical things as really kind of separable from the glorious mathematical advance. And Dyson himself said what he really learned at the feet of people like Hans Bethe was to really follow numbers, uh, empirical experimental things. You see that with the, with the reactor, you see that with Project Orion, you see that even with the Dyson spheres. Because again, he wants to say not just is this feasible, it's a cool idea, but how would we know? What would a realistic signature look like? What could we go out to try and look for? And that doesn't mean we'll find them, but it shows that kind of attention to melding the really esoteric, incredible mathematical power with something like an empirical uh, um, uh, series of inputs as well. And David, uh, Freeman Dyson was also interested in in the origins of life, I suppose, here and on Earth and, and possibly elsewhere. And and you've got a chapter on that in the book, which I, I found fascinating. I think uh, mostly because I know absolutely nothing about the science of the origins of life. So I, I, I really enjoyed learning about it. And Dyson was particularly interested in something called the metabolism first hypothesis of how life emerged. What is that hypothesis and, and why was Dyson an advocate of it? Well, I also uh, am far from my own comfort zone on this material, but so I learned a lot from, from that chapter as well. And it was very important to Dyson. He, he didn't just sort of come at it once. He, he learned about it again on a sabbatical uh, back to California, the University of California, San Diego, UCSD. He talked with many colleagues in biochemistry and other related areas. Uh, and again, he brought his, his particular skill set to try to get a kind of complementary view on what everyone would agree is a very complicated, to this day, very complicated topic. So his idea was to try to, to, to go beyond the kind of the, the, the studies of replication of DNA molecules and how the double helix can split and, and kind of uh, replicate a kind of genetic message, which by this point, by the, even by the mid-1960s, was, was quite well known and carefully studied. But Dyson said, we have to understand what goes on beyond just the sort of single strand of DNA level. What about huge collections of biologically relevant molecules, populations, if you like, of molecules, as a physicist might consider something like statistical mechanics? How do you worry about large collections of these things, and not only the individual kind of microphysics or microdynamics of this or that replication event? And once you began thinking about large collections, uh, of these of these molecules, he realized that there are going to be competing processes or competing requirements, and it's almost like a kind of chicken and egg thing, uh, which comes first. That there have to be ways to sustain all these activities of mobility, of reproduction, of replication, and that broadly goes under the category of metabolism. How does one use the energy sources to do all the other things that have to get done? And then reproduction, which is which Dyson thought was distinct from merely replication. How does a whole collection of things reproduce instead of the individual strand of DNA replicating? So then you have to worry about things like errors and, and uh, error tolerance, fault tolerance, and so on. What's the statistics, the kind of error rates, when large, large collections of these things have to go through both meta metabolic processes, but also uh, uh, individual replication, which when you add them all up, sum them up have to go towards reproduction. 
And there again, Dyson became convinced that from very simple kind of quantitative toy models, he himself was happy to call it a toy model, that there are kind of competing rates and competing kind of uh, inherent tolerances for, for inaccuracies, for errors. And that metabolic processes, he thought, might be more error tolerant than some of the other ones. And so maybe a large collection of kind of biologically relevant molecules in a, say, a hot primordial soup uh, in the Earth's atmosphere or the seas or wherever, maybe you had to kind of get better at metabolism first because that was less likely to get messed up by the inevitable errors that would creep in. And then that could lead to a kind of uh, refined process of replication-based reproduction. You can see uh, I'm waving my hands because now I'm reaching the limit of my own understanding. <laughs> but the idea, as, as near as I can grasp it, was that you have competing processes with different characteristic rates, different characteristic kind of uh, uh, errors or, or um, you know, kind of statistical flukes that will come up. And once one begins thinking about large collections of stuff rather than individual kind of strands of DNA, these are the kinds of large-scale statistical uh, quantities to wonder about. And there, Dyson thought, metabolism is likely to win. That, that seems like a stronger foot to kind of establish first. And then from there, the other processes would hopefully have, um, would, would, then, would then flourish and, and proceed. And so, again, I'm certainly no expert in this topic. My understanding is that these days there is a kind of complementary or dual view where it's sort of not all one or the other, but some of these metabolic processes to which Dyson was drawing attention seem to have, have been appreciated much more, more broadly among the real experts, the real domain experts. So there's something to that kind of statistical uh, kind of error tolerant process that really does seem to be folded and even to today's cutting edge ideas. Okay, so so even though as Dyson admitted it was a, it was a toy model, it it maybe got people in the field thinking and um, and and moved moved research on in into the origins of life. Is that uh, is that safe to say? Was it a you know sort of a genuine contribution to uh, to knowledge in that field? That, that's my understanding. And again, I think Dyson himself would have been quite modest about it. I certainly don't want to overclaim on, on, on Freeman Dyson's behalf. But my understanding was he brought, you know, a different skill set, a different set of tools to bear. And he helped sort of strip away a lot of the details, which no doubt are, de are deeply important. But to start from a simple kind of toy model, the way that mathematical physicists are, are, are so skilled at doing, and say, what are the simplest parts and what's going to happen when we put lots of these processes together and think it come at it with the kind of statistics, which, again, he'd been honing since his days as an analyst for the, for the bomber command, let alone his work in, in uh, theoretical physics and phase transitions and condensed matter. So I think in that sense, he helped shine a light onto kinds of processes that are likely to be important. And then other you know, real domain experts have, have, I think, been able to push it much, much further. So David, later in his life, um, Dyson became a bit of a, a controversial figure in the debate about climate change. I mean, as far as I can tell, he he took exception to how climate change research was being done and also how society was responding to global warming. Am I right in thinking that he he said, basically told people not to worry about uh, about climate change and global warming. What what happened there? Because I I found that surprising. You know, somebody who um, I'm guessing would have a great respect for for good data driven science, which you know I think modern climate change research is. Dyson didn't. He, he, 
he seemed to reject it. Well, why is that? It's 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 a very important question and a difficult one. And again, something I learned a lot about from from delving into that topic while while working on the book. And and there's not a single straightforward answer. In fact, what I found helpful was to trace more of an arc that Dyson really engaged with that topic for for roughly nearly fifty years, and the nature of his thinking about it shifted. Uh, and the late in life kind of headline grabbing, uh, sometimes really kind of uh, hair raising claims that were made by him, or maybe sometimes on his behalf, people taking some of his claims and, and going even to more really, I think, quite uh, unfortunate extremes. But that really re- reflects um, the late stages after Dyson had stopped really engaging with the topic, whereas earlier in his career, in the, starting in the 1970s through the early 1990s, he was uh, he was more deeply involved with the research and 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 more frankly I think uh, uh, constructive in 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 a, in a complicated multifaceted challenge. So he really began working on this in earnest in the early seventies. We'd heard some ideas about this. We now know back even in the mid nineteen fifties, long before this was a topic of widespread scientific interest. There were efforts at the Institute for Advanced Study uh, to try to develop brand new electronic computers. That was already a new thing, a relatively new thing, to do what we'd now consider uh, simulations of things like weather and climate. The flow, uh, the exchange of things like carbon and carbon dioxide between the atmosphere, the ocean, the surface level, the deep ocean, the role of, of, um, of plant life. So these were things Dyson heard something about even in the 50s. And then in the early mid-1970s, spent a sabbatical, in this case, at a kind of energy policy think tank associated with one of the national laboratories, the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. And he published a peer-reviewed article there where he was actually really calling attention to what was by then a a much better recognized problem of human-driven, we might say anthropomorphic climate change, burning fossil fuels is not doing good things. And the rate at which it's happening is, is getting worrying. And these were all Dyson's own observations and, and sharing that with what was becoming uh, a, a, a more widespread scientific concern. So Dyson wrote these, this early paper saying, to really address this effectively, we're going to have to get all of human society off of fossil fuels. And that's going to be really hard. That's correct. That is going to be really hard. We've learned with all the more stubborn uh, experience ever since. So Dyson said, we have to have a kind of short-term and a long-term view. We have to buy ourselves time because there won't be a, a, a society-wide technical, technological revolution overnight. So while we work on new, cleaner forms of energy use, let's figure on how to capture and sequester carbon from the atmosphere in the short term we're, while we're still burning fossil fuels. And let's do really widespread use of, of certain kinds of planting of trees and, and ground cover vegetation that could sequester carbon. And he ran the numbers. You could do it with this kind of acreage. It wouldn't get in the way of, of agricultural crops, have a very modest carbon tax to make it self-funding. It was really, uh, a, again, a kind of a multifaceted set of, of interventions that he called for from the kind of toy model scaling arguments that he was working on for things like origin of life and, 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 and uh, much else. He said, there's no rules of physics or ecology that rule this out. This is doable. We must do this in the short term because the problem's only going to get worse. He was very clear and unequivocal in the 70s. He came back to this topic in the early 1990s. And by now, he's become a bit of a, of a complementary uh, researcher. He's not 
he, he when he says he has disagreements with the main experts, it's disagreement in emphasis, not on facts. Those are his words. And, and that seems to be quite clear. He agrees that human driven uh, uh, fossil fuel consumption is, is a real problem, that climate human driven climate change is real. It's happening and it's bad. He's not a climate denier by any stretch, certainly in the early 1990s. His concern now is with, again, he sees kind of hidebound bureaucracies, the kind of organizations that aren't new, open to the flow of ideas in a way that he hoped they would be. To him, it's a replay of kind of the Second World War and Bomber Command. So his concern is with the, the priorities of large kind of slow moving uh, bureaucracies rather than the fact of the problem. He says there's too much money going into still fairly rudimentary computer simulations. He says, of course, simulations are going to be important, but he wanted more kind of um, reliable longitudinal measurements to really understand the carbon cycle between atmosphere, ground level, surface level, oceans, and so on. So again, he's not saying it's not a problem. He's worried about the, the way of addressing the problem. He doesn't like top-down uh, um, policies. He doesn't like going more and more to a kind of virtual simulation. Fine, sort of fair enough. All in the context of saying this problem is not going away and we better think about it. Okay. As far as I can tell, that was really the last time he'd engaged really deeply with the research, uh, the, the many facets of the research uh, that would go into our understanding of climate change. And roughly 10 or almost 15 years later, he gives what in hindsight was really a kind of turning point public lecture in 2005 up at Boston University. And here's where the language has really changed. That now he sees himself not just as a kind of friendly, complimentary kind of neighbor nudging along with new ideas and, and fresh insights, but really as a critic of the consensus, not a climate change denier. It's still important to say but a critic of what has, by this point, become the, the main scientific consensus. And, you know, Dyson was always skeptical about kind of authority. And so he, he lambasts the state of the art without having really been up to date on the state of the art. And I think that's where the, the real divergence starts to become so, so apparent. And frankly, for me, I'll just say it heartbreaking to the analytical powers of this unbelievable thinker, where now he, he really is not immersed in the data, not immersed in the most recent research, and saying, you know, we're going in the wrong direction, not as a denier of the problem, but as a denier of, of what had emerged as the set of priorities. So this is fused in Dyson's mind, I think it must be said, with a kind of otherwise buoyant optimism. I think it was misplaced, personally, I think it was misplaced in this, in this topic. He was, to the end, a techno-optimist. Human ingenuity will get us out of this. We'll build better spaceships to explore the, you know, the cosmos. We'll, we'll, we'll understand how to harness the, the power of a star with a Dyson sphere. He said, there's no end to our creativity. That's a beautiful, beautiful, optimistic way to live one's life. I think it can get away with, with oneself if it's, if it's untethered from what becomes a more and more pressing kind of time-sensitive quandary, like, like rapidly escalating climate change. So Dyson's concern wasn't that climate change wasn't happening. It was that we'll get there. We'll figure out some clever techno fix. And in the meantime, he thought there were very pressing problems on Earth affecting you know, uh, lots of people, infectious disease and poverty and so on, which, again, sort of sadly and ironically, just at that moment, were being tied more and more conclusively to things like climate change. The climate change is making worse the spread of certain infectious diseases. It's going to put even more pressure on certain uh, impoverished populations. Dyson didn't put those together. He thought we have to work on, on helping vulnerable people. I can get on board with that. 
And he says, we'll just kind of invent our way out of this. There'll be, there'll be some clever gadget. And so he was worried about the kind of alarmism rather than saying uh, climate change is somehow a hoax. The other side to that is he was not very careful uh, about correcting the record when other genuine flat out climate change deniers would kind of cherry pick some of Dyson's outspoken statements in the in mid and late to, uh, 20, uh, 2000s and 2010s and really spin them in ways that I don't think Dyson would have endorsed. So Dyson was guilty, let's say, of not correcting the uses to which his name was put. He was unfortunate, I'd say, in making increasingly sort of oracular statements when he himself admitted he was really beyond, out of touch with the latest uh, uh, developments by the, by the dedicated experts. And it led to really a kind of unfortunate divergence from someone who had begun with really, really very powerful, creative, quantitative, insightful efforts to take this challenge seriously and to, and to try to, to get people on board to say this requires technological, scientific, and policy changes. And he just, the kind of threads came a bit uh, un, undone in his own thinking as he moved away from the topic, but kept, frankly, kept, kept talking about it even when he wasn't immersed in it. That leads to a complicated legacy. You can see it took a while to, to even talk through it. I think it's it's unfortunate, but it is in some sense characteristic of Dyson's efforts to the end to be the kind of skeptical outsider, the kind of friendly critic and say, we all believe this. Are we sure? What do we need to know? Here, I think it was maybe, you know, uh, a bit misplaced. And other times throughout his career, that had been really a winning combination. You can see why he'd stick to that as, as, a, as a kind of move to make. Well, th this has been a fantastic discussion, David. You're obviously uh, uh, really enthusiastic about the, the life of, of Freeman Dyson. And, you know, it's great that, uh, that you've put together this book with, with your co-authors. Um, and, and listeners, please do check out David's book. I, I read it uh, when I was on holiday, actually. It, it, was, it was for a book review for Physics World, but I read it on holiday. I cracked it open when I was sitting on, on the plane on the runway. And um, as soon as the plane took off, I, I was hooked. Uh, I read it for two, two hours straight on the flight. And, uh, you know, I was, I was sneaking away from my vacation to, um, to read about Freeman Dyson. It really is a, a rip-roaring description of a, of a truly extraordinary life. And um, uh, the book is called Well, Doc, You're In, and um, it's highly recommended. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. Really, it was a delight. And I, I'm just, I, I, I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. I learned a ton from my fellow co-authors, and I'm just thrilled that the book is out there. I hope other folks will, will enjoy it as well. Thanks again. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to our guest, David Kaiser, and to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we'll be chatting about optical coherence tomography and the role that it can play in the diagnosis and monitoring of diseases of the eye. Physics World.